Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. This is Karen Fabian. Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Now, first of all, I want to just take a moment to say that this week is the one year anniversary of the podcast. We're almost at 10,000 downloads and running about 200 downloads a day. And I am so excited and thrilled that you all are listening, leaving reviews on iTunes, sending me emails and commenting on social media with what you like about the podcast, the kinds of thoughts that came up while you were listening. Some uh, listeners have suggested topics for future podcasts. So I love all of it. And I especially love um, the reviews, um, not just for the obvious reason, because it's always great to see good reviews, but because the reviews that are posted allows it to get more visibility on iTunes. And I'll you know, be honest, I definitely want to get more visibility for the podcast. And you can help by leaving a review on iTunes. So if you like the podcast, take a minute and leave a, leave a review. Um, so I'd love to know what your favorite episode has been so far and what topics you'd like to learn more about. And I'd especially be curious to know if you enjoy the uh, episodes about anatomy more than the episodes about different teaching topics or vice versa or both. So you could send me an email, uh, although I'd really love to get that information in a review so that others can see your thoughts. And then it'll give me a chance to kind of assess things going forward um, from one source of, of feedback. So take a minute and do that. That would be great. For today's episode, I want you to think about beliefs that you have about teaching. So if you can, wherever you're listening, close your eyes and go deep inside and think about what you believe to be true as a teacher. It could be about money, right? I started with a big one that triggers people, money or poses, or sequencing, or what it takes to get a teaching gig, or personality, or any number of things. 
And we're going to talk in detail about beliefs today and then dive into some beliefs that teachers hold that when you break them down, don't really always hold water. Now, if you missed episode two way back when the podcast started a year ago, go ahead and listen to that one next because in that one, I outlined self-limiting beliefs that teachers have. And today it'll be a mix of themes, kind of along the same line, but I'm really focusing today on things I used to believe as a teacher that took me some time to, um, I don't wanna say think myself out of it, but reframe it and come to a new way of thinking. And I've been really kind of big on both reframing and coming to uh, a new way of thinking about things of late. Uh, last year, I had an opportunity to work for several one-on-one sessions with a neuropsychologist uh, and a neuroscience coach. And she really shook me to the bones. I mean, she really broke down beliefs that I had some of which I didn't even know I had, but through what I was saying, what I said to her, the stories, the excuses, you know, when we talked about things that were pretty, you know, kind of black and white, and then all these different things would come out of my mouth and she would call me on it and force me to really look deeply at why do I hold those things to be true? And through that experience, I really was able to push myself to a different level um, when it comes to teaching, sharing from the heart, being authentic, and really in my business as a whole around taking um, what I used to think was risk and just doing it now without concern for the risk. So um, that's just, you know, part of the personal work I've done. And this is after 14 years of teaching. I mean, this was just last year. I wish I had done that work really early on in my career. Although in a way, I don't think it would have had the same impact uh, if I did it early, early on. Although I would never discourage you from doing work with the neuroscience coach. I would always encourage you to invest some money in that, um, you know, even alongside or in lieu of therapy, Certainly, if there's a clinical reason to, to take on a therapist, do that. Um, although, if that isn't indicated in your personal situation, think of this more as a personal growth kind of thing. And connect with a neuroscience coach. If you're looking for referrals or how to find one, just send me an email and I can share some resources. So why does this all matter? <laughs> you know, I always try to add some of that in because I value your time as a listener and I want to try to provide some context for the information that I share each time. Some of it's pretty obvious. I mean, if it's about cues or different anatomy principles, if you're into anatomy, well, I don't need to kind of justify it to you. You know, something like this conversation, you might be listening and thinking, oh, I thought this was, you know, about anatomy or different things that are really concrete. What does this matter to me? Well, if we don't examine our beliefs, we will always be operating from the same limited space from the same limited mindset. Now, beliefs, as I said before, can be something we picked up from someone else and often are, thing, are things that limit us in taking action, for instance. So when I said before, that thing about, I had all this worry and fear about taking a risk. Oh, what if I you know, book that workshop and nobody shows up? Or what if I book that retreat and nobody signs up? Or what if I 
book that retreat and it's $3,000 per person. Nobody has that kind of money. All these things and on and on and on. The ego, the mind has no shortage of feedback, mostly negative, that it is happy to share with you unless you are willing to reframe it and or choose another mindset, choose another approach, choose another perspective. So this is why in the context of teaching, you know, if we're looking at things that are limiting us in taking action, if you want to be a successful teacher with opportunity and a way to reach more students, you must examine your beliefs and make sure they are not holding you back. I mean, I just got an email the other day from someone who is, has graduated from teacher training, but is terrified to start teaching. Terrified. And this is common, but this is what you signed up for, <laughs> you know? And in a way, this is a beautiful example of how our beliefs can create such inertia. Now, I'm not saying it's not reasonable and understandable for this person to be terrified. I don't know this person's full story, so I don't know the source of that fear. And that's really what it is. It's fear. At, at its root, that's what it is. I remember in one of my first teacher trainings, a woman got up and practice taught and the entire time, the entire time she taught from the back of the room. And we, when she was done practice teaching, we asked her why, why were you constantly in the back of the room? And she related this story about how when she was young, she excitedly dressed herself for school. It was one of the first times she did it. And she ran downstairs to show her mother. She was so proud of the outfit she picked. And her mother took one look at her and said, there is no way you're leaving that house in that outfit. It doesn't match. Go back upstairs and change. And she was understandably crushed. And so she took that on and it shaped her personality. And she became the kind of person that hid and she came, became the kind of person that you know, stayed in the back of the room, sat in the back of class, and here she was in her 30s teaching a yoga class from the back of the room. So if you, know, if you don't think that that's an example of how beliefs can shape us and can hold us back and limit us, I don't know another one. If you've got another one, please email it in. Um, you know, this is the kind of powerful story that illustrates how our beliefs can hold us back and that holding us back when we look at it in the context of teaching gets in the way of us being our best, most authentic self when we step in front of the class. You know, let's face it. If we're not growing personally, we are missing out on a wonderful, necessary way to grow as a teacher. So I'm going to go through uh, four, four beliefs. And I don't have a lot of notes here. I mean, I'm really just speaking from off the cuff. Uh, I literally had these thoughts when I was walking to class the other day. I posted them on in Instagram. And I wrote in the Instagram post that I wanted to expand on these ideas further in my podcast. And so I love, love, love having this platform to connect with you all and to share these thoughts. And I want to hear from you. I mean, to a certain extent, I'm bringing these things up because a lot of these things up, a lot of these things are never discussed. This is the kind of thing that makes me mental about yoga teaching that we're all walking around and we're just like 
you know, chatting about surfacey things. And there aren't a lot of formats for us, opportunities for us to sit down and have heart-to-heart -heart talks as teachers about the stuff that really matters, right? Beyond the scheduling, beyond getting subs and all of that, that's just the mundane day-to-day -day mechanics of teaching. What about all this other stuff? So this is the kind of stuff that I want to talk about, and this is in large part why I started this podcast. Um, it's a two-way street, though. So as I share this information, your comments, your reviews are a great way for us to get the conversation going so that it's two ways, not just me talking and you listening. So please, please share your thoughts. So the first one uh, that I definitely believed for many years, um, and then I went through a phase where I really, really believed it, <laughs> is the harder the poses, the better the class. And I remember this particular belief really took off when social media took off for me. I was triggered by so many of my colleagues who I knew for years, who were posting pictures of them, doing handstands on the beach. You know, I can't do a handstand without a wall. I certainly can't do one on the beach. And I remember my boyfriend saying to me, how come you don't post any pictures on Instagram of you doing a handstand on the beach? And I said, because I can't do it. And we started to have this discussion and, you know, he was saying, well, how are students going to respect you as a teacher if you can't demonstrate that you can do these challenging things? Now, keep in mind, this is coming from love. <laughs> this feedback from him to me was coming from love and really coming. I mean, he's an athlete. And he has grown up as a hockey player. Uh, you know, I won't go into the whole resume, but very, very good. Played with the Junior Bruins. I mean, hockey was not a passing fancy for him. And he was approaching this from a mindset of an athlete. And yes, that is definitely part of an athlete's mindset. However, in yoga teaching, who's to say that you need to be able to do pose A or pose B in order to be a good qualified teacher? right? That's completely not appropriate and not part of the mechanics of being a teacher. Teaching, of course, can be done in lots of different contexts. And in many contexts, you would never want to even teach a handstand, right? There would be many contexts where that would be, even in today's yoga world, not appropriate. In open classes, beginner classes, classes where you go in and teach and you assess in the first 10 minutes, this is really a class where I'm going to need to give them a lot of support. So putting all that aside, let's just think about it in the broader scope. Just the idea that the harder the poses, the better the class. So what is that really saying we believe? That's saying that we believe that the only benefit we get from yoga is through the complexity of the poses. And as teachers, as students of yoga, we know that to be false. We know as our knowledge of yoga develops and as we learn about the fundamental concepts about yoga, they are profoundly simple concepts, right? I mean, things about breath, meditation, foundation, alignment, focus, um, setting the gaze, all these essential building blocks that have absolutely nothing to do with complexity, but yet in their simplicity, they can be enormously complex. Take for instance, your class at 545, where you have 
you know, a handful of highly distractible students and you ask them to hold warrior one for not three, but 10 breaths, they're probably jumping out of their skin around breath five. But I guarantee you that if you head into those classes, knowing that this is the general vibe and you focus on the fundamentals, you will, if you're tuned into it energetically, you will feel the energy of that class shift. Now, when I was a newer teacher and or when I was caught up in all this bullshit on social media, I would go in to class like that and I would think I need to flip the dog, I need to do complicated sequencing, I need to do three balances on one leg, I need to switch from this to that, crow, side crow, headstand, on and on and on. And after a while, what I realized is that the really impactful classes, and, and again, this is kind of hard to, to know because you're not getting feedback from the students, but as you become a more seasoned teacher, you will be able to read the energy in the room. You'll see students are keeping up. You'll see that their focus is good. You'll see that they're engaged in what's happening. They're taking right alignment, things like that. I found that the simpler I made it, the better the connection with the students. And so many times when I walk into a room and I feel that frenetic vibe, I completely scale things back to just the essentials. And it's oftentimes after those classes that people do comment afterwards with positive feedback. Now, maybe other people there thought it sucked. I don't know, but this is again, you know, part of you can't be a teacher for everybody, which I didn't put on the list as a belief, <laughs> but is another belief to just, you know, throw out the window. If you're going to try to be a teacher to everybody, it's completely exhausting and will never work. You need to be the teacher you are meant to be. And that comes through living authentically and teaching authentically. Right. And those things happen together. Right. I can remember back in the day when I started teaching, I used to have this persona in the studio and then this persona outside the studio and I didn't see them meshing. And over time, it was exhausting to keep that up. And it wasn't even like I had a lot going on in my personal life that would be questionable. Right? There was really nothing going on there. But I felt like I had to put on a certain face when I went into the studio. And that has just dissipated. And I hope for you that has dissipated as well. And if you're brand new in the first year of teaching and you're starting to do that, just stop. Just trust yourself and just be yourself in all facets of your life, especially when you step into the studio. So that's the first one. The harder the poses, the better the class. We're kind of kind of say, you know, my, my uh, theory to you to hold out my hypotheses is that that is, is just a belief and that's not borne out in reality. Now, the second thing is emulating my mentor will help me build a following. And, you know, this idea of building a following <laughs> You know, there's a business side to it, right? I mean, we want to have classes to some extent that have students so that the studios we work for 
continue to support our classes on the schedule. Although there's also a side to it where we want to feel like we're finding our people, right? Two seconds ago, I said, be authentic when you teach. You know, so we want to feel like we are connecting with students who, I don't want to say necessarily appreciate our way of teaching, but who feel that our presentation of yoga is helpful to them, is, is something where they're learning, is something where they're growing, is something where they feel supportive. Whatever the variables are, I think there's plenty of them we can name. So this idea of building a following, you know, we can always look outside ourselves. And one of the totally understandable ways that as a new teacher we do that is we emulate those who we learn from. And the reality of yoga teaching as a discipline, uh, and in many disciplines as well, but definitely in yoga, is that we're learning from a master teacher, a senior teacher, someone with more experience. I definitely don't want to use the word guru because I think now that whole term has taken on a very different flavor, especially of late with a lot of what's come out about the guru-student relationship with a lot of figures in the traditional yoga world. What I'm simply talking about is you're going to a local studio or maybe you've connected with one of the top 50 teachers in the world in terms of exposure and publicity. Note I said exposure and publicity, not quality, exposure and publicity alone. And you figure I should sound like this person, sequence like this person, this is gonna help me build a following. And so I definitely believe this to be true when I began teaching. And I really didn't have another kind of roadmap to go by. Everybody that I really was associating with, they pretty much followed along. We were encouraged to sequence things according to the master template, you know, and on and on. And in some ways, there was benefit to that right? It was nice to have a template to lean on. I've talked in many prior episodes about the importance as a new teacher to have a go-to sequence. That's how I was trained. It's not how many teachers are trained now. And I feel that does put the teacher at a disadvantage because they're left to their own devices to come up with something rather than having something given to them in training that they can leverage, which allows them to always show up and teach the same thing and handle all the other variables that they don't know are gonna come up better, okay? So I think there are some advantages. However, it's one thing to teach the same sequence. <laughs> it's another thing to parrot what they say, to use the same intonation that they use, to use the same tempo that they use, the same pacing that they use, the pauses that they use, the phrases that they use that are more conversational. And so this is something I definitely did. And it really kind of makes me cringe, um, but I know that I just didn't know any better. And so I think that the true way to build a following and to find your people is to be yourself. And this is kind of the overriding, overarching theme of all of this, is the more you stick to your authentic nature the more success you're gonna find as a teacher. And success is gonna be variable. It may be that you have a consistent following of five to 10 people in your classes versus 50 to 60, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that that teacher is more successful than you. 
You know, I know a large part of what I do um, in my business involves digital marketing. I have online courses, I have lots of content I generate to a VIP mailing list. I'm sure many of you are on that list. I can share that I have about 2,000 people on my mailing list. I don't have 20,000 people, right? I'm not like a Tony Robbins, you know, type person, Martha Stewart, whatever. But I have lots of interaction with the people on my mailing list. I get responses to emails I send out. I get responses when I send out an inquiry email. I want some feedback. I get good feedback on the social media pages. So I love that I have a small but mighty, highly interactive list. And so you have to look at things oftentimes from the perspective of quality over quantity. And this comes, this perspective comes when you have quiet confidence around who you are and you consistently share from that space. When you are simply looking for followers or headcount in your class and you're, you're missing out on making the connections with your students that will build loyalty. And so if you're out there thinking, especially as a newer teacher of under a year or two years, that the only way you're going to be successful is to have big classes and big headcount, please put that thought to the side. Think about where that's coming from. What belief do you have where you're so ingrained in thinking that's the only way? And I can tell you, for instance, when I worked with a neuroscience coach, and she was asking me questions about my yoga business. And I started to go into these different stories about, oh, this one was on the cover of Yoga Journal because my understanding is this person knew that person and there was an opportunity that was shared on and on. And it, you know, in looking back on it, I'm ashamed, ashamed that I had those thoughts. But at the time, I was constantly looking outside myself for why not me, why not me, instead of looking at me and saying to myself, what are you not doing? What are you not sharing? What are you not holding back? Or what are you holding back that's preventing you from making connections? Um, you know, I, it makes me think, and I know this is probably a little controversial to bring up his name, but you know, I live in Boston, and so it's a huge, obviously, New England Patriots uh, home base. And, you know, Tom Brady, I know, probably brings up some, some strong feelings for people. I think he's a little bit, I mean, obviously a great athlete, and sometimes there is a little controversy around him in terms of his trainer and his training methods and that kind of thing. Um, one thing, though, that Tom Brady demonstrates impeccably is never making excuses. And again, if you're listening and Tom Brady is not on your fan list, I get it. And if you're hearing this and you're thinking, oh yes, he makes excuses and blah, blah, blah. I, I give you that, right? Um, however, if you can kind of step away from that or if you have no opinion one way or the other, one of the things that I can share in, in my observation of him as an athlete is that he never makes excuses for poor performance, for less than stellar performance, for losses. And I have his book, uh, his training book, the um, TB12 method. And he goes into extensive detail in that book about his mindset. And it's not a mindset just shared by Tom Brady. Many, many top athletes have this kind of no excuses mindset, as do many very well-known transformation 
you know, people in the transformational space. And so this idea of not using outside circumstances to make excuses for yourself is so important to your success overall in life and as a teacher. And I wasted many years making excuses. And when I think back on it, um, I really was a bore about it. And I give my parents a lot of credit because they listened to a lot of these excuses. And it really was, in retrospect, just a way for me to avoid facing my own beliefs that were self-limiting and either reframing them or just chucking them and saying, these beliefs don't serve me anymore. I am done. And you know, this is one of those situations where you really start to understand and recognize that yoga teaching is an amazing tool for self-growth. It is not just getting up in front of people and walking them through movement. It is that, but it's so much more if you're willing to use it as a template for personal growth. Now, I'm not saying you're going to go into your classes and go into personal issues with your class and use it as therapy. No, no, no. That's not what we're saying. But all these things we're talking about, being authentic, I mean, that can be terrifying for people. Terrifying. And so when you think about, you know, what is the most, one of the most common fears that people have, what do they say? Speaking in public. This is one of the reasons why anytime we go out, if there's an opportunity to do karaoke, I always do it. Now, granted, I grew up, you know, acting and grade school and singing and all of that. I'm a musical person, but I am still really nervous when I get up to do karaoke. It's different when I'm with my family. But you're out at a bar, you don't know these people. And even though you're probably never going to see them again, it's still petrifying. That's why I do it. I do it even though Ben is like, oh my God, oh my God, please don't go up there. Please don't go up there. He's more terrified for me than even though I'm terrified, I can move past it. And that's why I do it. So think about, you know, you're scared to get up and teach. You've done your teacher training, but you're paralyzed. You know, this is the kind of, emotion you have to work with and, and figure out a way to get past. And there is huge rewards. There are huge rewards on the other side when you face those fears and go forward anyway. Okay. So the next thing is, the next belief uh, is teachers with packed classes are making a sustainable living teaching yoga. So this is definitely something I used to believe that I do not believe anymore. Now, do I have proof? No. Have I asked other teachers for their financials? No. Do I have 15 years of experience in this industry? Yes. And from that experience, this is what I can tell you. That when, and this is in large part what I teach when I teach business workshops for teachers, um, in my first book, Stretched, Build Your Yoga Business, Grow Your Teaching Technique, which you can get on Amazon and on my website, I go into a template that you can build called your business dashboard. And this template is a way that you will very quickly see it is almost impossible for you to make a sustainable living if you're only teaching classes. Now, when I wrote that book in 2014, it was still fairly doable to get a schedule as a yoga teacher such that you were teaching two, maybe three classes a day, maybe five days a week. In my estimation, and you guys out there listening can correct me if I'm wrong, 
it is almost impossible for one teacher to get 15, 16 classes a week on their schedule. There are just too many teachers. There are just too many teachers, it's musical chairs, and not enough open slots. Now, does that mean you abandon SHIP? Of course not. What it means is that when you look at what you need to build to build a sustainable living as a teacher, you need more than studio classes. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that. That's all fodder for a separate episode on yoga business. If that is something you'd like to hear more about, comment, let me know. And, you know, if I get enough people to comment on it, I'll, I'll do it. Um, I maybe will do it anyway. Um, but think about, let's say, all right, so let's get into some of the numbers because I know people don't really talk about numbers. And again, this is one of those things I find really funny. So let's say on average, yoga teachers in the United States make anywhere between 20 and $50 a class. Now your range may be different. Uh, in your area, the low end may be something like 50 or could be something like 15, right? I've talked to teachers that are teaching in their local Ys and it's $20. Um, now, in some situations, let's say you're a teacher that has a standing relationship with a studio and it's one where you've demonstrated you can bring in students consistently. Now, you know, make no mistake about it right? Studios need to have substantial class sizes in order to meet their fixed cost and then some, you know, fixed costs, including paying their teaching staff. So let's say you're a teacher that demonstrates you can bring in a, a good number of students per class. And that number is going to depend on how big the studio space is. So let's say you've negotiated or they've offered, or you've worked out a business arrangement where you're on the high end of that scale. So let's say you're making $100 a class. So I'm just gonna take out my calculator here. So let's say I teach two classes a day at $100 a class. So that's 200 a day uh, times five days a week is $1,000 a week times four is 4,000 a week. Now, right out of the gate, I can tell you, it's really gonna be rare for a teacher to be making $100 a class, two classes a day, times five days a week. I would say that's probably pretty rare. The $100 rate is significantly higher than most teachers are probably paid in a studio. The opportunity to get two classes a day, five times a week is probably pretty rare. You know, so I think that just kind of pokes some holes in it. The idea though is, even if that were true, can you live on $4,000 a month for everything? And the answer probably is no. Now, I'm not saying $4,000 is not a lot of money to make per month. So $4,000 times 12 is $48,000 a year. That's almost $50,000. That's pretty good. Keep in mind, though, if that's the only thing you're doing, everything needs to be paid out of that, including your health insurance, any savings you're doing, and your taxes. Because when you're working full-time as a teacher, you're working for studios who pay you as a contractor, most likely, not in all cases. And so you most likely need to be making estimated tax payments throughout the year. And that comes out of that money too. So whether you're say uh, setting aside 12, 15, 20, 23% of what your earnings are to make your quarterly payments, 
to the IRS and your local state uh, uh, system, that's all coming out of that money too. So I think, you know, this idea, which, you know, back in the day when I started teaching in 2002, that was what I had as my vision. <laughs> my vision was, I'm just going to try to get as many classes as I can. That's the lifestyle that I'm going to live. And, you know, it took some time for me to realize that not only was that physically exhausting, even with me not doing yoga when I teach, right? But it was mentally unsustainable and exhausting and wasn't very scalable. You know, that you can only teach so many classes uh, per week and not get to a point where there's no scalability. You can only be in one place at one time is, is the point. And so if you're limited as to how many classes you can take per day by all those forces we and variables we discussed a minute ago, you're always going to have a certain ceiling. You know, it's kind of like if you're, let's just say you're a psychologist and you're seeing patients and you charge $100 an hour for your sessions. Well, there's only so many patients you can see. So even if you have an endless supply of patients, your maximum amount of money you can make annually is always going to have a ceiling because you're the only one doing it. So this is why when I work with teachers in one-on-one -on -one coaching on the business side of things, I talk to them extensively and I give courses to, to people live and in person around building a sustainable business. And a big part of it is digital and productizing. So once you start to create books, manuals, uh, online courses on whatever your area of expertise is, of course, here we're talking about yoga, yoga teaching, my specialty is anatomy. So that lends itself well to all of that. Then you begin to build tools that can help people, can help more people and help your business scale. And in the big picture, when you think about big picture vision, then you can really start to build a big picture vision about what does a sustainable yoga teaching career look like for you? And back in the day, if you had asked me, I would have said, oh, doing two retreats a year and teaching yoga classes. I would never say that now, right? And I can promise you, ever since I got into this business, I've written a weekly report. And part of my weekly report is my overall vision short-term and long-term. And if you've ever read one of my favorite books by Stephen Covey, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Living, um, one of the basic theories there is begin with the end in mind. You've got to have the end in mind where you want to get to because it will shape everything you will do throughout your day, throughout your week, throughout your month. If you're just otherwise living willy-nilly with no sight at an end goal, you're never going to be able to reach any reasonable sense because you don't have any roadmap and any overall goal you're trying to get to. And this applies as well to teachers who are part-time. This doesn't just mean teachers who are taking on teaching as a full-time endeavor. Okay, so the last one is students don't wanna learn the anatomy associated with the poses. Now, I definitely used to believe this. And this really came from my initial training um, not that anatomy was shunned. I definitely don't want to say that. Um, 
I think it came more from my initial training being so heavily focused on the personal growth side of things. And so my initial experiences as a yoga student, my initial experiences in yoga training, my first number of years teaching really um, exposed me to wonderful, wonderful teachers and wonderful teaching experiences. And there was a huge emphasis on personal growth being part of teaching. And so anatomy really didn't come into play, which in retrospect seems kind of funny because it is a movement practice. We're trying to teach people how to move into certain poses. So the most obvious thing we would wanna be cueing them to <laughs> is the anatomy. Now that's not to say that limited mindset and hitting the wall and not knowing how to deal with resistance and discomfort in the body and all those personal growth type themes don't also come up when we're on the yoga mat. And I, I mean, I know it, you know it, you've been in a class, it's hot, it's hard, you're hitting the wall. You know, I've run a couple marathons, you may have as well. You know, you have to come up with mental techniques to deal with resistance and to, and to push through. Um, but, you know, anatomy is just a fundamental thing that we have to know as teachers, and we have to be able to take this complex subject and break it down into understandable ways for our students. And so over time, I have absolutely come to appreciate that as I have really owned my authentic nature to share what I love, which is anatomy and all the fascinating things about the body, and to share it in the context of yoga teaching, and then to go even further, to really share it in the context of the cues I give, because that's really what I have. It's not like I'm going into class and I have a PowerPoint to show. How do I have a way to share the anatomy? Through the cues, right? And so once I finally shed all that other stuff around trying to be popular and social media pressure and all this head stuff and all of it, I just own that this is the kind of teacher I am. I am teaching anatomy. This is the focus of my classes. And what I found, which was so interesting to me, is that once I owned it and focused my classes in that way, I got more questions after class than ever before. And that's how it's been for many years. And what that really showed to me is that students are really interested. They have aches and pains in their bodies. They have funny feelings. They don't get the poses. They don't understand the cues. They don't get the alignment. And if you can demonstrate that you know your stuff, they will absolutely ask you questions. Matter of fact, last night at the end of my class, I had a student come up to me and she prefaced her question by saying, hey, I know you know a lot about anatomy because I can feel it in your teaching. So I have a question for you. And so, you know, this is again where you have to sit down and do some thinking about what is your authentic way of teaching? What is your niche? Because niche and connecting to that is absolutely a way to be comfortable, to be authentic, and to find your people. And that's ultimately what we want to do. We want to find the students out there who appreciate our way of teaching, whether it's 10 of them, 20 of them, 100 of them, 1,000 of them, whether we connect with them in person, virtually, however we do it. All right. So we have reached the end of the podcast today. Now, a few things before we wrap up. As I just shared, uh, I had a question 
from a student last night in class and it was about lower back pain, FYI. And I got into talking to her about myofascial release as a technique I wanted her to try. And so if you are interested to learn more about myofascial release, I'm going to include a download, which is a guide to MFR that you can download. And I'll include it in the show notes. So you just need to go to the website, my website, barebonesyoga.com, go to this episode, and you'll see the link to download that guide. Um, when you go on my website, you can just click right on the homepage, the link to the podcast, and then um, you'll see this episode. And that's how you can download uh, that particular guide. And it's a really good thing to understand more about myofascial release. And I also today did a video on the subject, the question from the student, what the question was, what we discussed, what I recommended, a little bit about myofascial release and how it works. And if you want to watch that video, just go to my Facebook group. It's called the Bare Bones Anatomy Facebook group. If you're not already in it, there's almost 700 teachers in there from around the world. If you're not already in it, just click the link and I'll get an invite, invite and I'll add you. And you can also get to the link right on my homepage, barebonesyoga.com. So I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast. This has really, really been from my heart. I just had a couple of shell notes on a piece of paper and this was very, very unscripted. And I really am interested to hear what you think. So thank you so much for listening and I will talk to you soon. Namaste.